0: Morality, personhood, the environment, the value of life itself, all are stretched and distorted into unrecognizable infinity as they approach the singularity at the
1: center of the black hole. We remain here as witnesses, studying the results and transmitting our findings to anyone who will listen. Coming to you live from the edge of the event horizon, this is the Quantum Reactor, a
0: sci-fi movie review
1: podcast starring two brave souls with stars in our
0: eyes and quasars in our hearts. My name is Jeremy Cobb. And my name is
1: Andrew Coons. Both our pronouns are he, him, and I've seen things you people wouldn't believe.
0: One of the the beginning of one of the all time great, probably all time great film monologues. Honestly, not just sci fi monologues.
1: Yes, and one of the one of the all time great performances. Like I'm not I'm not calling the entire performance in that movie all time great. Although I think it is very good. Um, but that moment, I mean, you talk about things you can just put on repeat. It's a masterclass yeah. in how to how to do a death scene, but oh goodness, we that just spiked the the spoiler <laughs> reading right there. Yeah. <laughs> That we didn't was, say who it was. We didn't say who it was yet.
0: Very true. Very true. Um, we are here talking about the 1982 film Blade Runner, directed by Ridley Scott, starring Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer, uh, Sean Young, Edward James Olmos, Daryl Hannah. Uh, James Hong shows up. Yes. He's in everything. The James Hong uh, multiverse. Yes, one of the seminal, not just, I would say, not just cyberpunk films, because it is one of the seminal films of the entire cyberpunk genre, but also one of the seminal sci fi films of all time.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think as we get into this movie and we talk about um, some of it, I mean, obviously we've released already our our episode on Orientalism uh, and Techno-Orientalism, so some of our thoughts and opinions on this movie may already be out there, but I I think one of the things that I want to call out right away is Ridley Scott (laughs) and just, like, this movie, back-to-back with Alien like what a run just i mean not just what a run but like yes there are things in both films but specifically this one that like i take issue with uh and things that i think the director should be held accountable for and whatnot but let's not also undersell the way that this man has completely shaped what we know as sci-fi today um, yes. It's pretty incredible.
0: Two of the all-time great sci-fi movies. And not only... Like, his first movie, The Duelists, is also really, really good. Yep. If you haven't seen that. Dude was just on a roll. Yes. Like, unbelievable. Um, Yeah. Ridley Scott, Uh, what a career when it's all said and done. Because uh, he's still going. He's still um, going. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they ain't got all winners. They are not
1: all winners. Nope. But you know what? He... He it's really our fault for being so obsessed with our phones. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: so, uh, but in the in the in the case of Blade Runner, uh, do
1: we want to give initial thoughts on this movie? Yes. Um, yeah. So initial thoughts. I mean, I think we're it, it, both of us agree that this is one of the best looking. Um, and from a technical standpoint, one of the the best sci-fi movies ever made, um, mm-hmm. you know, upon a recent rewatch, it's shocking how much still holds up uh, in terms of the special effects. Not everything, um, but it's shocking how mm. much does. And when I think about films that feel deep, um, which is a term that I like to use, I think about Lord of the Rings. I think about movies like Blade Runner, where it's like. Any one shot, like, it just feels like the world goes on and on and not in a green screen, you know, type of way. Like, the set design and everything on this movie is just remarkable. From a story perspective, um, there are elements of this movie that I love. And there are some elements that I think uh, hurt the movie and some elements that are just baffling to me. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. It's all over the board when it comes to story for me and also with performances, um, mm. I would say, and we'll 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 get more into this uh, when we when we do our quirks at the end of the of the of the episode. I, I would say there's more to like than not to like in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. Though the things that I don't like are pretty hefty. Um, but there can be, in my opinion, this is this is the Citizen Kane of sci-fi films. This is the look, even if it's not your cup of tea. Uh, this movie is so influential and so important in film history that you've got to give it its props. Yeah. I actually,
0: uh, I agree, especially on a visual. From a visual standpoint, um, Citizen Kane has a visual richness and texture and detail that I think... Blade Runner kind of parallels in a number of, like, it's just, there's just so many, it doesn't just, it's not overwhelming, but it's like, wow, this world feels so alive. Every image feels like it has so much going on. Uh, I I personally think Citizen Kane is so much more fun than this movie, (laughs) uh, to the point that it is almost laughable to compare the two. Uh, Just like, you're never gonna have, like, a parrot screaming to wake the audience up in this film. Like, you're never going to have any... You're never going to have a, the, a dance sequence. Like, an impromptu <laughs> dance taking place. Like, Citizen Kane is... Uh, people talk about that movie being boring... Um, I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna go off on, on too long of a rant here. <laughs> I just think that from the get-go, if you go into it, just be like, "Hey, let's watch a movie and see how this goes." Yeah. From the opening thing where you have like this eerie music, it's like, "Oh!" And we see all these random animals in a zoo, and it's all creepy. And the moment uh, yeah. that, that he dies, and the, the 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 snow globe rolls, and it's like yeah. visually so inventive that it's like,
1: yeah. "Whoa! We're seeing a person in the reflection of the snow globe. How I wild mean, is that?" Citizen Kane suffers nowadays. From being touted as the greatest film ever made, um, yes, it, it I agree. it's hard to like to, to live up to that, and I certainly don't hold that opinion myself. I think it is one of the most important films ever made. Hundred um, percent, and I think the same with Blade Runner. I think there are some expectations maybe people have of Blade Runner of like, oh, this is the greatest sci-fi film or the greatest cyberpunk film, and it's like, well, mm-hmm. uh, debatable. Um, but it's certainly one <laughs> probably of the best probably the best looking, the cyberpunk looking and potentially the most important. For what it did yeah. to the genre, at least in Western um, cinema, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, I completely agree. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. There are I love to look at clips from this film. Yeah, uh, I love to look at images from this film. I definitely recommend if you are a fan of movies in general, and especially if you're a fan of sci-fi, that you give this film a try. I do not like watching this movie I do not think it is a good movie I think I think there's a lot that is hugely recommendable about it yeah. but I don't I there is no excuse for a movie about early 1980s Harrison Ford hunting super-powered androids to be This boring. Uh, That is an absurd idea to me. Uh, Honestly, having read the book, the book is so much more engaging. Yeah, Uh, it's yeah. uh, Ugh, this movie is so dull. Uh, In every way except visually. Uh, Well, and, and not the score. The score is not dull, but. I know there's uh, there's probably a lot of people out there grinding their like gnashing their teeth, punching holes in walls. That's okay. I'm going to come to its
1: defense on some points here in the near future, but yes,
0: Uh, please.
1: (laughs) Should we start with
0: a little summary?
1: I think that would be great. Um, Yeah. So, if I'm not mistaken, mistaken, we start with some some exposition. Yes, um, I actually
0: have the expository text here. Oh, do you? Excellent. Here,
1: yeah. Yeah, we get, we get some very um, kind of classic, uh, f- you know, filmmaking-style exposition about what's happened on Earth uh, over the last however many years, because this film takes place uh, in 2019. Yep. Uh, which is laughable now. Uh, and one of <laughs> my... Yes. A personal pet peeve of mine is when sci-fi films set their settings in an era where the filmmakers and the actors and whatnot will still be alive potentially during that time. (laughs) If I ever make a sci-fi film, it will be 300 years in the future where I won't have to be like, oh, I was so far off.
0: Yeah, exactly. And in the 21st century, there are some parallels to real life that are really coming into play right now. Um, But uh, there's a corporation called the Tyrell Corporation that has created uh, a kind of robot Uh, called a Nexus 6. Well, really called a replicant. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then there's a Nexus series of replicants. And the Nexus 6 replicants, which are essentially, these replicants look like, they're androids who look like humans. um, And even bleed like humans. I don't know if we ever actually see a mechanical part is as part of
1: one of these. No, replicants. there's no Terminator moment where like the skin peels back or anything like that.
0: Yeah, they're basically, from what I could tell, they're basically super powered synthetic humans yeah. because they are faster and stronger and at least as smart as humans. Uh, they are explicitly used, by the way, explicitly used in the in the opening crawl as slave labor.
1: Yep, yeah, that word is used. There's no beating around the bush. There's no oh, but what if this? It's they are slaves.
0: Yeah. Uh, they are, ver- and it does. It says they are virtually identical to humans, but they are used as off-world slave labor in the hazardous exploration and colonization of other planets. Yeah. So they are. Colonial slaves. Yes. Uh, there was a mutiny that took place before the before the the events of the film. Uh, a group of Nexus Six, uh, a combat team in an off-world colony, had a apparently a very violent, bloody mutiny, and now replicants are illegal on Earth under penalty of. Death. Uh, there are special police squads called Blade Runner units that are in te- that are specifically designed to hunt and kill upon detection any trespassing replicant. And it, the last lines of this crawl are: they say this was not called execution; it was called retirement.
1: <laughs> Which is just such a. Don't we just do that? Don't we just find nice words mm-hmm. to to cover horrible, horrible things? Yeah, uh, I really we've been doing like that. that since crawl. the dawn of time, but still.
0: A hundred percent, yeah. Well, yeah, it, it tells you, what, basically what it's telling you is these are basically humans. Yeah. They are synthetic humans, but it, they're virtually yes. identical to humans that are just better than yeah. humans. <laughs> uh, b- yeah. And we treat and, them and as look, slaves. We're going
1: we're gonna to tee off on Ridley Scott a little later uh, on some of the things that that should not be in this movie. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do think one of the things that this movie reminds me of, or this opening crawl reminds me of, um, is that for all of the, you know, the big film studios and, you know, these guys like Ridley Scott are now these giants of this film industry, um, you know, I was watching and I think we forget sometimes that they are artists and artists by nature, I think a lot of times tend to you know, take a harder look at the world and try to say something and, and have maybe more progressive ideas. I was reminded of this watching an interview with George Lucas, where he was talking um, with James Cameron and was very explicit. Like, yeah, Star Wars is the Vietnam War.
0: <laughs> like, mm.
1: Like, I meant that to be there. Like I had something to say about Vietnam. Um, right, America's an
0: the evil empire. Exactly, guess, yeah. yeah. And it's
1: like it's very easy, I think, now on the back end of these guys' careers to be like, well, you're just another corporate shill and you're part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not saying that they aren't in some ways, but it is interesting to look, to give some benefit of the doubt, at least at the beginning here, and go, like, you're trying to say something here about a really important topic. Um, and, you know, let's see where this goes.
0: Yeah, 100%. And I think just... From a pure audience standpoint, very effective. It yeah. gives you it gives you all the information you need, uh, and you're like, oh, okay. Well I mean, written. Blade Runner, really cool name, uh, yeah. and and we and but but the Blade Runners are are bad guys, <laughs> at so least
1: the way this is set up. I don't think the name ever gets any explanation other than it's just cool.
0: <sighs> yeah, <laughs>
1: which is which is such a sci-fi thing to do.
0: Yeah, uh, I should, I must confess, the first time I ever watched this film, I had just heard the name of it. Uh, So my teacher, I had a teacher, an English teacher in school, Mr. Carter, uh, who was just great. Uh, He was my favorite teacher in high school, and he was like, he mentioned Blade Runner and said it was a really great movie and said we should watch it. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I was, like, in 10th grade. And I'm like, well, Mr. Carter says he likes it. The movie's called Blade Runner. Yeah. Like, what's not to like? Yep. And then I watched it, and I was like, what were you thinking, man?
1: Yeah, uh- <laughs> I had the same experience. I, I mean, I was out of college the first time I saw this movie. Um, but yeah, you hear, oh, God, this is like one of the best sci-fi films ever made. It's Harrison Ford, you know, mm-hmm. right around the height of his, you know, fame and everything. And it's Ridley Scott, and it's called Blade Runner, and I, I remember being pretty bored the first time I watched it as well i've I've grown to appreciate it more, and we'll get into that. but um mm-hmm. but yeah, it is a it's an odd film from a pacing standpoint for sure.
0: yeah. For sure. Um, so the basic premise: we start yep. in Los Angeles, uh, a future Los Angeles, twenty nineteen. Uh, this version of Los Angeles is a hellscape. Yep. The sky is almost perpetually black. There are uh, there are pillars of flame shooting into the sky, innumerable lights, vast city city swaths. If you've never seen this movie. Basically, imagine if Coruscant in the prequels, the Star Wars prequels, yep. was bad and scary. Because yeah. when I say that, I mean Coruscant is a straight ripoff of Los Angeles in this movie. Like, sure. and, and I don't. I think it's consciously one. Like, I, I think it's meant to be an homage, but it's it's like it's almost visually identical, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and it is always raining. It's always miserable. Yeah. Uh, Earth. All it, it, the implication we get is that most at least wealthier and well-to-do Earthlings have left the planet. Uh, Los Angeles appears to, instead of the mixture of, of cultures that it originally had, now primarily uh, populated by Asians and Middle Eastern people. Uh, we see a lot of elements, like there's there's neon Asian signs, there's a recurring yep. uh, advertisement involving some sort of geisha woman uh, that occurs throughout the film. Um that's kind of the Los Angeles in which we find ourselves, we're introduced to our protagonist, Mr. Rick Deckard uh, played by Harrison Ford just chilling, eating noodles at a noodle bar, it's raining, it's miserable, people are carrying glowing umbrellas and then some police officers show up, uh, claiming that that he needs to come with them and yep. that he's a Blade Runner, and he's like, no, I quit. Like, I'm not anymore. Uh, and they're like, well, you're coming with us anyway. Uh, and, of course, this is our introduction to the character of Gaff, played yep. by Edward James Olmos.
1: Who, if you're familiar with him from some of his recent works... Uh, is just one of these guys who he's really changed as he's aged, not in a bad way, but just like I did not recognize him at first. It was that whole like, yeah. God, this guy looks familiar, but there's no way I know who. And yeah, uh, he gets...
0: going from this to stand to deliver or yep. stand and deliver is a jump, man.
1: Yeah, but it, I, I, I will say, I actually really like his performance in this movie. Um, oh, I yeah, think he brings. Great. Um, some snarkiness and some some swagger that is really needed from that character, especially when you compare that to Harrison Ford's very stoic um, Rick Deckard.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. He has... Now, it's a weird thing, because when he first shows up, he's not speaking English. He's speaking what I thought was Japanese, but what is actually called city speak, which I actually looked it up. City speak is a combination of Japanese, Spanish, German, and other languages. Yeah. Uh, and he shows up speaking this, the, uh, Rick Deckard appears not to be able to understand city speak, but the vendor does, uh, and translates for him. I think Jed, Edward James almost cuts such an iconic figure. Like the way that he, the way that he is costumed in this movie, the bow tie, the hat, the cane, the way he like walks with a strange hunch, uh, Uh just like the tight, slender clothing. It's so instantly iconic. There are so many outfits and costumes in this movie, and images in this movie that are instantly yep. iconic. And yep. by the time, by the time Edward James almost shows up, we've had like ten. Right. <laughs> and we're like two minutes right. into the film. It, this film is relentless in its visuals.
1: I do love the city speak from a world-building um, standpoint. This idea mm-hmm. that over time languages have just blurred i mean that's what happens in re- in reality
0: languages Absolutely.
1: blur together and so this idea that in a in a, an increasingly um connected world that eventually language you know city speak just becomes this amalgamation of all these different languages it's such a great little world building um kind of thing for me Hundred mm, percent, and so we follow
0: we follow Rick Deckard. And actually, I wanted to throw out um the book version. I don't know if it's as present. I, no, it is. It's, it's present in the movie as well. But the book, A Clockwork Orange, really leans into that by like uh-huh. mixing bits of Russian in in like having all sorts of slang terms that yeah. it creates specifically as part of its lingo, which I think is really cool. Yeah, um, which some of that is
1: specifically the 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 gang from the main. The main yes. characters' gang, and not yes. necessarily the broader talk, but yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um. So, uh, Rick Deckard rides with Gaff to the station where he meets the police chief, uh, Bryant, who is. This is like the most classic hard-boiled cop setup. He's yep. like, I'm. Re- I'm. He never uses the word retired, but he says, I yep. quit. I'm out of the game. And they're yep. like, Well, look, buddy, six replicants. Killed 23 people yep. and stole a ship and have st- have gotten onto Earth. Uh, they this cannot get out. This yep. is too big a deal for it to get out. We never quite know the details of why this can't get out. But he's like, this cannot get out. We oh, and actually, no, I'm wrong. The opening scene of the film isn't actually that. The opening scene of the film is a Blade Runner carrying out an interview That's with right. a person. Yeah. In, in, yep. yeah. Uh, yeah. as part of he's carrying out what's called a Kampf test which mm-hmm. is a essentially a test it's like a Turing test
1: yeah it's a it's the future version of the Turing test yeah yeah and and I will say like for for some of the pacing in this film and the you know the thing I do think it's a very striking way to open the movie uh, oh I it's love very the intriguing um, you know you're you're not introduced to any main characters right away. Uh, But you're introduced to this idea uh, and this concept of trying to determine whether or not someone is a replicant, because these things are so realistic, uh, even in their ways that they interact with people, that it's not as simple as, you know... Trapping Siri in, you know, a, a loop uh, where you know can't get any more intelligent answers. Like, there's a lot that goes into determining whether someone is a replicant or not. Mm-hmm.
0: And we also get introduced to our eye motif. Uh, we have shots yep. of the flames of the cityscape being reflected in an eye. We have the the test measures eye dilation yep. uh, in re- as in response to emotional stimuli. Uh, and I love I, I love this opening. I think it's a really cool. At least the idea of it. I think it's a really cool idea for like a cold open to this movie yep. to establish. You have, like, the intrigue, and you're like, okay, is this guy a replicant? But the right. conversation they have is so weird. <laughs> like, it's it's so, like, he's like, please answer quickly. And he's like, oh, okay. And then he says just the name of a hotel. He's like, that's where I'm staying. And he's like, what? And it's like, what? Like, it's it's yeah. really weird to watch. I don't, I, I, I'm guessing it's maybe intentionally weird to just make them both seem, like, Just odd fellows,
1: (laughs) or or (laughs) that the way he's talking to him and interrogating him is kind of this weird offbeat kind of gets you on your heels type thing. Right, disorienting intentionally. Yeah, that the that the machine is going to, and and you know, especially in the final cut, which does not include voiceover. um, I think there is a lot about this film that sometimes successfully, sometimes not, is is one of these movies where the audience is trusted to to figure things out. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't spoon feed a lot of the, the things to you. It, it it's confusing at times and it's murky at times. And there is, um, and I know from just behind the scenes conversations that I've read about, like that was a desire of theirs was to, to not make it, you know, spoon fed to the audience. So yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah, and I think that was a great uh, overall, at least in theory, a great choice. And right. I also love the use of the the bass, the bassy heartbeat that comes in during parts of that scene. Uh, and that scene ends in a burst of sudden violence. We yep. won't say exactly what happened, uh, but. Then we will jump forward back with Rick Deckard, who goes to speak to Police Chief Bryant. He's told that, look, these replicants are loose. You got to find them. Um, He's shown... There are four of them apparently still out there. Uh, He's shown their images uh, and is basically threatened. He's like, no, I'm quitting. And and Bryant is like, well, if you're not a police officer, then you're little people, and you know what that Mm -hmm. means, or something to that effect. And he's like, okay, so I guess I don't really have a choice, which is interesting. Um... There's, yeah. There's, a, okay, I have a lot of questions right off the bat just from this scene, um, be, just just from the information that we've been given, because I don't understand the implication. During this conversation, Deckard is told that, or we are told, that Deckard is, like, the best. He's yeah. one of the best Blade Runners. Even though he had quit, he is one of the best Blade Runners. And yet, why doesn't he know Gaff? if Gaff Uh is a, did Gaff just join the force? Is Gaff even a Blade Runner? Who is this man other than just a police officer? Why, uh, I'll anyway, there's another question I have that relates to something later in the film, but I won't even ask yet. (laughs) Um, but then, not only that, but like the police, uh, Bryant is explaining what the Nexus 6 is to Deckard Uh but the Nexus 6 is what precipitated the Blade Runners in the first place. Why is he explaining this? Yeah. I haven't thought about that. Why is Deckard confused
1: about this? Yep. Honestly, I can't think of a theory that makes sense with this. So I have a theory that I, that makes somewhat sense, but, um, we'll have to get in the spoiler chamber for that. Um, I think one of the options for that is that as well done and as well written as the opening crawl was, uh, this is an example of hammy ham fisted trying to feed the audience information. Um, I think that's the Occam's razor. That's the simplest explanation for it. I have a more complex thought uh, for the spoiler chamber, but yeah.
0: Yeah. I think I said this to my dad earlier. I think what would have made sense is for these new Nexus sixes to be a new model, and have them specifically yeah. say like even if it's not even if you say Nexus six point whatever 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 whatever. And then yep. Deckard can seem confused, and he's like, oh, what's with the new models? And But I also like the idea yep. of making, of even going a step further and not only having him act confused, but have it revealed at some point that he does know, and he's been just keeping yeah. track of it. So even though he quit, he sure. couldn't keep himself completely away from the game. Yeah. Gives him a Probably little bit more here. character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Um, but Deckard is tasked with hunting down these replicants, and that is our
1: movie. Um Yep, that I, is our movie, him hunting down the, the four replicants. Um it is a you know, it, it's a very classic, straightforward plot. Um there are obvious there's definitely some twists and turns along the way, but on the whole, like, you know, that's it's here are the bad guys, go get the bad guys. <laughs> uh which is yeah. you know a tried and true formula.
0: Yeah. Um I I think with that the next the only thing yeah. you have to do is to climb onto the spoiler chamber.
1: I think you're right, because there's a lot to talk about in this movie, and pretty much all of it, from this point on, becomes spoilers, so let's yeah. suit up. Yep. Right. Let's put those zips, those clips. Uh, you get your door, I'll get mine. Oh, I'll
0: get you. You get my door, I'll get yours.
1: That's how you do Yeah, you it's kind of it. like when you do the champagne thing with the... Yeah, okay.
0: Exactly. And we are linking our arms whenever we We are do. linking, yes. yeah. It's very intimate. <laughs> Here we go. And... <sighs> all all
1: right. right. Yeah. Okay, so... I, there's a lot to th- we, we could spend the whole episode just recounting the plot because it's not a short movie either. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, just under but two essentially
1: hours. essentially the plot from here on goes Deckard works on finding each one of the replicants and kind of starts to track them down one by one while the B plot is following the replicants and seeing what they're up to and what they want. Um, led by uh, Roy Batty, um, who's Rucker Hare's character. Um, they are kind of mysteriously going about, uh, you know. It, it, some there's they're fractured, they're split. There's one of them is yeah. is uh, you know kind of doing like almost like a burlesque type show. A um, couple of them are roughing up James Hong's character, who's uh, the designer of these replicant eyes, and they're trying to get you know information and stuff from him. Um, mm-hmm. Essentially, what is revealed is that they know that they have a four year lifespan. This was the, the, the safeguard that was built into these replicants. They only live for four years and they want more life. And so they are doing what they can do to track down their maker, um, mm-hmm. which they do by first finding uh, James Hong's character, mm-hmm. who then leads them to J.F. Sebastian, who is mm-hmm. one of the designers of kind of the, the replicants and has been involved with that, who then is able to be their link to get to the Um, the CEO of the corporation. Uh, And so they're kind of working their way up the chain all the while Rick Deckard is approaching from the other direction trying to find them. Um, And as part of Deckard's, uh, you know, involvement in this case, we get our introduction to another one of our main characters.
0: Yes, uh, Rachel. So the first step, or uh, one of the first steps, that Deckard is told to take on hi- during his investigation is to go and visit the Tyrell Corporation, uh, who are the ones, of course, who create. The Nexus Six, uh, specifically to speak to Mr. Tyrell, Eldon Tyrell, the the uh, CEO of the company uh, and the main, the lead designer on the Nexus Six series. Uh, and he goes, and that's where we meet not only Tyrell but Rachel, played by Sean Young. Uh, again, yes. what an introduction! The lighting, the costuming, the framing. So amazing. The hair, she is the one of like she's like the quintessential sci-fi femme fatale in the way that she is presented.
1: Yes, and and that actually, I think, just even the name dropping of that term, um, one of the big things that I think about this movie. We've talked about Star Wars, and and you've asked me the question: Is Star Wars sci-fi or is it fantasy? And I think we can both agree that it is. It is sci-fi, but it's really it, it. it's sci-fi, or it's fantasy masquerading as sci-fi mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. in that regard. It's the bones of a fantasy story, uh, but with a sci-fi skin on it. Mm-hmm. Blade Runner's a film noir. Yeah. Blade Runner is 100% a film noir with a sci-fi skin over top of it. Yeah. Um, and therein, I think some of the decisions in the film start to make more sense. Some of the pacing makes a little more sense when you think of it as a film noir. Um, some of the character choices, um, and and even though I'm much more familiar with the final cut, which removed the voiceover sections, mm-hmm. even the voiceover of yeah. you know Deckard kind of talking through things, that's a very film noir trope oh, um, to, to do. And so... I don't think it absolves of, of all, all its flaws and whatnot, but I do think that if you if you view this movie through the lens of a film noir, and and really a very classic one at that, not really trying to reinvent the wheel here, you've got your femme fatale, you've got all these different, you, your hardened cop, you know, your yeah. detective, your privatized. Like, your you know, gas character, it, it all starts to make more sense.
0: Yeah, hundred. I completely agree. Um, I, I also agree that that doesn't make up for all of the shortcomings. No. But I think it is a very helpful way to look at it. Um, and, I, I mean, th- look, it's to the movie's credit, especially from a visual perspective. Uh, the the chiaroscuro lighting has rarely, if ever, been done this well, even in the black yeah. and white films, which is saying a lot, because there are some incredible-looking yes. noir films. Um, but this... Yeah, this movie—so we we meet Rachel, she is immediately, like, enigmatic and professional and mysterious and seemingly intelligent. Uh, And then Tyrell, for some reason, uh, wants—because he's come here, I guess the idea is that Deckard has come here to practice the voight Kampf on one of the Nexus 6s to figure out how it goes. But for some reason, Tyrell really wants him to perform the test on Rachel. And so we yep. have this scene where he's performing the test on Rachel. Uh, and then, which I think is pretty well handled. There's like the, there, I, I think the, the, in, in contrast to the uh, first one where they're like this, it's this weird, awkward, disorienting uh, interaction. There's like an undercurrent of comp, like, Almost competitive flirtatiousness, where like yeah. like she's trying to prove herself to him it, almost.
1: It has one of my favorite lines in the movie, which is he asks her, uh, all these scenarios, and he says, "You see a mag, you open a magazine and see a picture of a fully nude woman, kind of posing the question to her of what she would do." And she goes, "Are you trying to figure out if I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. decker. Yeah, and it's just it's so snappy and so film noir in terms of its writing that it's just a great yeah. little moment.
0: Oh, I wish more of the movie was written that way.
1: I know, uh, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: because even when we're talking about film noir, one of my favorite noir films of all time is The Third Man, and that movie is it's so much It's my favorite more, movie of all time. It's, it's so, so much more playful, so much yes. more lively. Like, yes. ugh, this, ugh, I, it really annoys yeah. me, because like, this has such, such potential. This movie looks better than that one, and sure. this, that movie is already so good, but we never <laughs> have, we don't have a hairy lime we don't have yep. uh, we don't have a, a cuckoo clock speech. No. Like We oh. don't have the light reveal. We don't have a chase through the sewers. Come mm-hmm. on, guys! Like it's yep. really frustrating to me that this movie is not better from a plot standpoint than yep. or, and more just engaging. Uh, yeah. But I do agree. This scene between the two of them has some of that playfulness that I would have liked to see a lot more of. Yeah. Uh, some of that that. Uh, I guess life, um, mm-hmm. and then we got a little bit of world building, talking about how there are basically no real animals anymore. They're yep. all just—they're all, uh, all synthetic. Animals. Yeah, uh, Which they're is all so replicated.
1: bleak, but also so like—I mean, even now you see articles about people being like, "Oh, we're like finding the DNA of this extinct species, and we're going to be able to like not recruit, not clone it, but we're going to be able to learn more about it." And it's like, well, when is that going to be the polar bears? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like th- things are going extinct fast. So yeah, it's yeah. Like at the at mirror. the rate
0: we're going, they're they're already starting to breed with the grizzly bears. Uh, we yep. got the pizzly bears. And what's gonna happen after this is once the polar bears are all gone, it's just gonna be pizzly bears and brown bears. And over time, the pizzly bears are gonna mate with the brown bears until you don't really have any polar bear left. That's just what happens with these. Because th- yeah. You don't have any more. Like it's not like. I don't. I, had, I seriously I had doubt. To Google oh, go this. Ahead. I had never heard the
1: term "pizzly bear" before.
0: <laughs> I'm googling oh, yeah. it right now. <laughs> yeah, due to habitat loss, it is uh, polar bears are having to move farther south than ever before, so and are mating, are, are interbreeding with uh, pol- with brown bears to create. Uh, some people call them growler bears. Uh, I think I mean there's a te- there's an actual technical scientific yeah. way of naming these things, but I just think we should call them Pizzlies. I think we should throw out the liger-tiglon dichotomy. I... Get rid of the growler pisley. Just call them Pizzleys.
1: Wikipedia also says that another name for these are grizzlers, and I, I might have to side with that one.
0: <sighs> Grizzler is good.
1: <laughs>
0: Grizzler is good, uh. But that is like that is the that is a future we have. I mean, at one point, uh, they were uh, Tasmanian devils. um, This is less of an environmental thing and more of just Tasmanian devils have experienced a number of population bottlenecks over the course of their existence and therefore have terrible genetic diversity and are very susceptible to uh, epidemics, which there is currently an epidemic of face cancer among Tasmanian devils that is so infectious and so dangerous that it is threatening to wipe them out. And so researchers actually started collecting Tasmanian devils so that we would have a captive population in case the wild ones all wow. died. Uh but, crazy. but, like, there's a number of cases where it's, like... I mean, I think we're down to the last... I forget what kind of rhino it is, but I think we're mm-hmm. down to, like, the last rhino of one yeah. specific species. There's a lot of species that in 20 years, 20, yeah. 30, 40 years may not be with us anymore and yeah. so yeah so it's it's futuristic but it's not
1: unrealistic in a lot exactly of ways. Yeah.
0: The, and that's one of the as i think the environmental aspect and then the artificial intelligence aspect yeah. are the two things um i, I guess i want to ask you what do you think of the character of rachel not just as she introduced but her her development such as it is over yeah. the course of the film
1: I mean, I don't think it's terribly strongly written, and I think that there's a lot of sexism, and there's the rape scene, which we'll get into um, Mm -hmm. later on, but I do think that overall, um, I mean, I think her character serves a very important purpose in the movie, and I think that there is growth and development there, and and I like the idea of her character a lot, of... Uh, because what we find out is that Rachel is a replicant, um, and but the most advanced version, um, and she doesn't know she's a replicant, which that is the difference. Most of the replicants know that; all of the replicants know they are. She mm-hmm. doesn't. She's been implanted with memories, um, and so her discovering that is such an interesting, uh, such an interesting. Like, like plot development. Um, and sad scene. And so sad. So sad. And I wish they had done more with it. I mean, I wish the movie, it. it's interesting. It's a very ambitious movie. Like for a simple plot, you're dealing with Deckard and his issues. You're dealing with her realizing that she's a replicant and you're dealing with the replicants trying to get more life. Any one of those plots could be the main plot of a two hour movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot that it's trying to chew um, here at the same time for sure
0: yeah I yeah it, I think it's one of those cases where s- possibly similar to Ridley Scott's later film Kingdom of Heaven this movie could have benefited with actually more runtime to yeah. develop some of the other characters and storylines yep. a bit more um, yep. because I agree with you uh, underwritten but there's a lot of potential there a really yep. cool idea for a character the the quote unquote romance uh that exists yeah. is said to exist between her and Deckard could have worked. Um like oh, yeah. there's elements where it's like, oh I can see why these people maybe might get together. Right. My biggest complaints about it are there is very little development given to her character and number two, actually very little development given to Deckard's character. Oh and yeah. Almost none. Almost yeah. none. He's very sad. I don't need backstory, but like even
1: personality. Like an yeah. outlook. Like he's just Yeah
0: He's just dull.
1: Yeah. Well, and and therein where is where I think that some of the film noir lens comes in because it's not Typical that a film noir protagonist has some big journey they go on. They are who they are,
0: True, um, but at least they're interesting I,
1: most of the time. But they're exactly, and that's and that's the difference I think is that there wasn't enough to like make us like him, and certainly there are plenty of things to make us not like him. Um, and let's just get it out of the way because we've been referencing it. But th- there is a scene where he rapes Rachel. Um, yeah. Now it's not presented as some violent thing, but he coerces her. He tells her what to say in order to quote unquote give him consent. Um, and then sleeps with her. And he punches the I door closed. A, right. And, yeah. and I, I have a hard time believing that that's what Ridley Scott meant the scene to be. Um, I, and maybe it was. But I, I don't think he meant for it to be a rape scene. But I, what I do think is that it is indicative of the worst of old school Hollywood where we see these power dynamics and this sexism, men slapping women and all sorts of stuff that it's just like, look, this, is, this has no place anymore. Uh, it never had any place, but it, it shouldn't have had any place even in 1982. Yeah. Or if, it, if you're going to have this, if you're gonna have this, do something
0: with it. Well, exactly. Yeah. The music. Here's the thing. You could have had this scene. First of all, it's really weird from my perspective that he starts acting so aggressively towards her. Because this uh-huh. is like the most aggression we have seen. He's killed a person by this point in the film, and yeah, this and he's is shown more,
1: remorse for yeah. that
0: killing. He's looked and shook up. Yeah. In that moment, and so why is he escalating to th- like? What is the purpose of this? Yeah. And and. There, sure, there had been a little... There had been some sexual tension, sure. there Or sure. at least romantic tension. They had, you know, there was the playful back and forth and whatnot. And she... They're both shaken and having a rough time of it. But, yep. like, this isn't a Terminator. We find solace in each other's arms. Right. This is, like... he she, she, There's something very childish. Or not even childish. Childlike about Rachel. Yep. Um, very innocent about her character, which I think diverges from the femme fatale like, yep. that we are presented with originally. And it's, uh, tellingly, she's not presented in quite that way ever again. Her hair yeah. is often down. She's yep. wearing different clothes. She's not as put together the rest of the film. She's her. Uh, she's often uh, seen with her makeup smudged because she's crying, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Um, But, yeah, like the fact that he's like she's trying to leave, he goes... Punches the door closed, which is never a good sign. And it's the one point in the scene where the music turns, like, ominous. But then as he backs her against the wall, the music turns sweet again. And he's there... Forcing her to tell him that she wants it, and that she, she wants him to touch her, and all this stuff, and then he does, and it's like, what is this? And the music is as though this is some, is it as though he had he had said, "Please don't leave, I need you, right. I need yeah, this," yeah, and yeah. given a heartfelt yeah. speech,
1: and they're actually to like, yeah. it's what I, is? And this? that's where that's where it's like, look, I don't think the filmmakers were trying to to show him raping her. They they thought that yeah. this was some sort of. Um, some sort of, of romantic kind of overture here, but like it just it just doesn't play that way and I don't I don't know I've never I've never watched this movie and felt like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. like it's even from the very first time I watched I was like whoa like yeah. that's like way more aggressive than you need to be here bro like and it's just odd. And this does bring me though to my theory about the about Deckard and we I was just alluding to this earlier. Because one of the central questions of the movie, at least in the later cuts, Mm -hmm. um, because the movie did go through several different iterations that were shown in theater and then released, you know, director's cut and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But the final cut, the one that I'm most familiar with and what is the kind of the definitive one at this point. um, The big central question is, is Rick a replicant? Mm -hmm. Um, And does he not know it? And that's a really compelling question. And so... I know, it, I think it was in the, the episode with James, you had mentioned, like, you're not sure if that was really meant to be the question and if it was tacked on later. Uh, um, it was tacked
0: on 10 years after the movie came 10
1: out. 10 years after, <laughs> yeah. So whether that was ever real, like, initially a thing, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm going to operate under, that's the version of the movie I saw, that's that's how I'm going to approach this film, that that right. is a very important central question. If he is, is he not then the same model as Rachel? Mm -hmm. Is he not brand new with implanted memories and all this stuff? So when you ask things of like, how did he not know about X, Y, and Z? How does he not know Gaff? All these different things. Because he's a baby. His memories of doing all these years of being a Blade Runner, they're not real. Mm -hmm. He only exists recently. And that's my theory for him. That's also my theory for some of his emotional outbursts. Again, not excusing anything. Mm -hmm. But some of his emotional outbursts mirror... Roy Batty's character mm-hmm. and him trying to deal with his, with coming to terms with all these new emotions and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So you've got two sides of the same coin, the hero and the villain, who are really the same person. They're both replicants, uh, but one knows it and one doesn't. And mm-hmm. how do you cope with that? So that's kind of how I interpret that.
0: Yes, so here are my feelings uh, first on that theory, then on the replicant thing as a whole, and then I'll respond more specifically to the idea of interpreting that way. So, number one, in regards to the theory, why would they not have programmed him with those memories if he is meant to be a Blade Runner? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. That, if they did that, then they're stupid. Like, yeah. like somebody, somebody has messed up along the line. Why would, yeah. if you wanted this guy to be, uh, uh, if you wanted him to be the perfect hunter of androids, yeah. of replicants for you, why is he not a true believer? Why is he hmm. not, like, immediately like, yo, dude, this is the life I've been about. I always do this. I would never want to leave. I've always done this. Why is that not his perspective? Why is he not up on everything? Why would they not... Like, that's my first question. Uh, I've even heard people argue that maybe, maybe he's supposed to have Gant's memories. And that's why Gant knows, because of course, the crux of the whole theory, the thing that really brings it in, is the fact that he has, there are other elements to the theory, but the main thing is Deckard at one point has a vision or a dream or a memory of a unicorn running through a forest. Yep. And then yep. at the end of the movie, Uh, uh, Gaff, not Gant, Gaff, Gaff, who has been leaving, uh, Gant is from the wire, Uh, (laughs) Gaff, uh, who has been leaving little origami figurines around all throughout the film, uh, leaves a little origami unicorn at the very end, almost as, like, a signal to be like, I know. I know who, like, I know that you're not, uh, you're not a human. You're a replicant. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to quickly, because there are not very many pieces of support for this theory, uh, or at Mm -hmm. least not not many diverse, like, oh my goodness, there's a mountain of evidence. Uh, I believe the big (laughs) four, or the big three, are um, the photographs That's one that got brought up. Let me see. Oh, the glowing eyes That's the first one. So every single replicant in the movie, uh, including the animals, all have like weirdly glowing eyes at some point in the movie. And there is a moment after the rape scene when uh, Rachel is looking in the mirror and her eyes are doing that, where blurrily in the background, you can see Deckard's eyes do that for a moment. Now, Harrison Ford claims that that's just because he moved into the eye, it moved into the light Uh, unexpectedly and leaned in a little bit too far, but uh, some people still would argue that that is a piece of support. Uh, another yep. argument is that all the real human beings are usually physically damaged in some way. Gaff walks with a limp. Uh, yep. JF Sebastian has an accelerated aging disease. Tyrell's wearing gigantic Coke bottle glasses. Um, mm-hmm. Bryant is possibly a recovering alcoholic and just mm-hmm. generally gross. Like, he just seems like a sleazy, nasty dude. Uh, yeah. and Again, then, film
1: noir trope. The, exactly. The- yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: And then the replicants all real except for I mean Leon, Yeah, Leon's questionable cuz he's missing a chin, <laughs> but the the rest of them like are physical specimens. Now you're just bullying the actor. <laughs> so sorry, man. You did a great job in the role. Great job in the role. Uh but the the mostly they cast very pretty people yes. as the replicants. Yeah. And guess, and, and it was is interesting pretty. that they
1: cast him uh, in in the role as Leon, because uh, he is meant to represent more just like brute strength, mm-hmm. worker, doesn't need to be pretty yeah. um, in terms of, of his design or whatnot. So, I mean, I think there's some validity there of casting someone who maybe is not super conventionally attractive. Oh, I, yeah,
0: I completely agree. Yeah. Um, so those are like the main ones. And there's something with like the photographs, yeah. like how Rachel has all these photographs. that are supposedly from her childhood. Yeah. Um, uh, Leon has all these photographs. It's not sure where he got, it's not clear where he got them, whether he took them yeah. himself, whether he took them from people he killed, whether he was given them. That's not clear, but he, he see, seemingly cares about them a lot. And then, yep. uh, and then Deckard has a lot of photographs on his piano. Um, many of which look old-timey, like much older than even his childhood would have been able to be. A number of them are in black and white. Uh, and so that's that's another piece of support. Now, here's the, the big one, though. The thing that really had people asking, is Deckard a Replicant, is, of course, the unicorn scene. Now, here's my yep. problem with the unicorn scene. The unicorn scene is taken from the movie Legend, which was released three years after this movie came out. Yeah. So he took what uh, what the director's cut, which by the way wasn't even done really with uh, Ridley Scott's I believe full approval. Um what like I don't think uh in fact actually yeah, he said um Ridley Scott publicly disowned the work, this work print version of the film as a director's cut, uh, citing it was yeah. roughly edited and lacked a key scene, and the climax did not feature the score perform, uh, composed uh, by the film by Vangelis. Uh, I think eventually he said, um, like, he did have some say, but he did the, the only version that Ridley Scott has had full control over was the final cut. But the fact yeah. that we're trying to insert footage from a movie that came out three years after,
1: how was that in the yeah. plan? That yeah. couldn't have been in the plan. Well, no, and and the um, the book d- uh, does not have Deckard being a replicant. Right. Harrison Ford is on record saying so, that he's not a replicant. The writer? Ridley Scott, as far as my research goes, Ridley Scott is really the only person who wanted to imply that Deckard could be a replicant. Yes. He's the only person who's really gone to bat for this theory. Of you know, oh, Deckard actually could be a replicant. On the one, so and and two things with that. One is I agree with what a lot of articles say. It doesn't really matter. It's it's a compelling question, and it's okay that it's open ended or something. Two, as a you know. Sometime film director myself. I mean, I'm gonna side there with the director. Like, it's <laughs> his movie. It's his vision, right? And so, like, if at the end of the day, I, and the buck stops with him for the good and the bad, he mm-hmm. put that damn rape scene in there. He needs to be responsible for it. True. But at the same time, it's like, you know, uh, on the other side, it's like, well, if he's the one who's saying that he thinks that Decker could be a replicant, then the theory has legs. So yeah, I. But I you're say- not wrong. You're not wrong. It's all very revisionist. It's all very. um you know, based on the final cut versus the original, mm-hmm. it's it's weak argument for sure.
0: Yeah, and I look, I'll say this: I think it's fair to say that in both the final cut, uh, both the director's cut and the final cut, which came out in 2007, that in fact he is a replicant. I think that's absolutely fair to say. Yeah. Because I, my understanding is that Ridley Scott has gone a step, gone a step further than saying he could be. To no, he just straight mm, up is. Yeah. He actually is.
1: Yeah. I yeah. don't. So I, depending on which cut of the movie you watch. He's either a replicant or not.
0: Yes, which I think is which also is super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I yeah I think that I, I agree with you. I think that had they explored the aspects of his humanity or lack thereof a bit more, or struggles with that a bit more, we could have yeah. really had something there with this yeah. character. I think it's yeah. a great Instead, idea potentially. And
1: it, all the all of the humanity goes to. Rachel and really more so to Batty. Yeah. A hundred percent. With that freaking beautiful ending scene and whatnot, which I don't know. It's like, I'm torn on it. I, do I want my main characters to grow and be interesting and whatnot? Sure. But in some respects, <laughs> mm-hmm. like he's kind of an Indiana Jones in that he's, <laughs> he's kind of one note. He's kind of there just to move the story along. Like, And I'm not saying that Harrison Ford's a bad actor, because I've seen him do some amazing work, but he is also pretty good at just kind of being, you know, the guy who has to wear the hat or the coat um,
0: and and let the story happen around him. In Indiana Jones, though, he fills that in so much. He does, yeah, so much more. Yeah, Indiana Jones, you don't need an extensive backstory for him to immediately be like, oh, okay, just in the way that he plays him. Uh, sure. and the way that he behaves and and there's yeah. just more characterization. oh he's like really intelligent he's really adventurous he's brave but he shows fear yeah. he's terrified of snakes he gets yep. tired he gets beaten up you know like Red decker right. definitely gets beaten up and tired but we don't mm-hmm. see like okay he likes noodles
1: <laughs> <laughs> right like so so was he miscast? I mean I think that's a fair question to ask um, no I think the part's badly written. <laughs> I, okay. I don't know. Who are you going to put too. in this part yeah. and have
0: them play it well? I mean, maybe there's somebody who would have yeah. come in with more energy. Um, yeah. Sure. I think, yeah, you could probably have gotten – there are actors probably both in that era and surrounding that era who, if you were to cast them in this part, yeah. they would bring – like, if you if you made this in the 50s and you cast Marlon Brando in this part – Yeah. I think we'd be talking about a very different performance.
1: Yeah, But you know what, I, I, well, I was gonna say, I will I will actually agree with you that I think it is more the writing, because for me at least, in Blade Runner 2049, you've got a character with Kay, played by Ryan Gosling, who in a lot of ways, very similar in the stoicism and like meant to be kind of playing at one note. Mm-hmm. And because the writing was stronger, is a way more interesting guy. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, I mean, I'm not gonna say Ryan, I mean, it, I think there's a reason they cast Ryan Gosling. I think he, there is a lot of the modern Harrison Ford in him. He's very good at kind of doing the quiet stoic role. Yeah. Um, but it just came across and Deckard's way more interesting in 2049. Yeah. Uh, than he was in the original Blade Runner. He's got so, yeah, more. Yeah. I, I got, would just by being grumpy Harrison Ford. He's yeah. He's more interesting. Yeah. So I'm okay pinning it on the writing. Yeah. That's yeah. fair.
0: Um, And, yeah, Ryan Gosling shows even less emotion for most of Blade Runner 2049 than Harrison Ford shows in this, and he's way more interesting. Um, And and a lot of that, I I completely agree, has to do with the writing. Um, I think... Yeah, I think this movie should have had more propulsion to it. I think what we're given is sort of an action movie setup. Even if it's just mm. him trying to figure stuff out, I think we should have had a little bit more life to the pacing of some of those scenes. Because the yeah. scenes with the replicants are filled with
1: life. Like, there's so mm-hmm. much tension in all of those scenes. Um, Sometimes to to a, a campy degree. Like, yeah. um, Pris' character doing, like, cartwheels and backflips around the place while laughing maniacally, like... There's some weird stuff in this movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's just like it's kind of odd and it's very 80s at times. But but yes, it's certainly more dynamic.
0: Yeah, um, I yeah I completely agree. I think uh, I I think sub la- the 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 amount of life that the replicants are allowed to show and personality mm-hmm. that they are allowed to show in contrast uh, to Harrison Ford's character to Rick Deckard and and just like. I don't know. The, some of the choices he makes. Why does he adopt that bizarre voice when he's infiltrating the the erotic, the the what is it? The exotic dancing club and trying yeah. to talk to uh, Zora. I
1: forgot about that. Yeah. What? What
0: on earth is that? Why is he doing that? <laughs> yeah. Like if, if there's a way of look. If he was the if we had established him as yeah. the kind of guy to do that.
1: Now he's a Fletch type dude. Yes. So you know, even you know, you know, more serious oh. Fletch. Or have you something. have you played the game Disco Elysium? I have not. Okay. I need to. I've heard you reference it multiple times.
0: Yeah. The protagonist of Disco Elysium, I could a hundred percent picture pulling yeah. something like that. But, but Rick Decker doing like this weird nerdy, almost like almost like a gay stereotype voice, like it edges up to the line of like, who? What is he trying to do? Uh, yeah, yeah. And then it's, yeah, it's just so strange. Um, and also, he's like, if he's the best Blade Runner, who are, what are the
1: other ones like? Because this
0: dude, right. he is, he barely survives every, and it's not just he barely survives. That's right.
1: That's another movie pet peeve for me, and it happens in sci fi a lot where you'll get someone described as, oh, the best at whatever. And then we never see them being competent. This is my, oh my God, slight tangent. This is my problem with Star Trek The Next Generation and the character of Worf. He is set up as this Klingon warrior who is an absolute badass. He's the tactical officer, like head of security, all this stuff, and he gets his ass kicked every time. Like, it was one of the few. That was not one of the few things. There was a lot I liked about. It, but that was one of the really good things that I liked about the new Picard show. Mm. Uh, spoilers for this, but we're in the spoiler chamber. Is Worf shows up and kicks some serious ass, mm. and I was like, finally, this is the Worf I always wanted. Yeah. Um, but I. But I hate it when people do the whole like, oh, we're going to give lip service to you're really good at something, and then we're never going to give you a chance to to show that off. Yep. I understand the need to take a character who's very good at something and bring them down, but. Dude, you got to show me they're good first. You can't just say it. Yeah. Like you got to show me how competent. Show me Rick Deckard absolutely crushing finding the first two replicants and bringing them in, and then when he has a problem with Batty, Mm -hmm. what is that? Well, that makes Batty so much more badass. Yeah. Because we've already seen how competent Rick is. Yeah, and it's it's like,
0: because he he only survived the first one because she had to run away because people were coming into the room. If if, yeah. she, if people hadn't come into that room, he was done. He was dead. She, she had yeah. him dead to rights, uh, and so she goes yeah. running away. And then he manages. Like we see him being a very competent investigator. He's able to figure mm-hmm. out where people are very effectively. But he is sure. not good at the at the retirement part of the, the job. The Combat. Yeah. yeah,
1: which is which which we were told in the opening crawl, is like the main part of their job. Yes, exactly. Um. Yeah. The he uh he barely survives.
0: The only reason he survives Leon is because Rachel kills Leon. Yeah. Pris. Yeah. The only reason he pr- survives Pris is because she inexplicably chose ch- chooses to run away and then do a bunch of flips towards him. She had him dead to and rights. And then the only reason he survives
1: Roy is because Roy saves him. Yeah. At the end. <laughs> so Deckard sucks at his job. <laughs> like he it does. truly does. He's,
0: he's not good. He's, he's a blade no. tripper. He's not a blade runner.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. We're going to – that's the uh, the um, Honest Trailers <laughs> ending title for this movie, Blade <laughs> Tripper.
0: <laughs> it's – yeah. It's I, – I completely agree. If he had, like – even if that was a little bit cl- more of a close fight – like, mm-hmm. oh, say the opening one, she starts to get the drop on him, but he was expecting it. Like, he was anticipating yeah. it. And as she does that, he shoots her once, and she's like, mm-hmm. and staggers back, and is just forced yes. to throw a wild haymaker that knocks him for a loop. But then she has to run, because she's now bleeding heavily, and she knows he's not going to stay down for long. And then he's hunting her. That's one thing. If Leon, yep. event- you know, also gets the drop on him, but he does some trick, you know, he hooks the gun yep. with his foot and hands it up to his and at the last second, manages to shoot Leon in the head, or you know, something, yeah. or fina- oh,
1: some other creative thing. Like he he maneuvers yep. him into getting hit by a car, or anything, yeah, anything, yeah, anything that gives him agency. And like you know, look, I'm white guys get all the agencies in films, but like, <laughs> you know, we got a character that has no agency in these fights. It, he's just yeah. he's just he's just getting his ass handed to him, and then. Is being saved by everybody else, which, again, I'm fine with that if we're going to first establish that, like, oh, what he's being saved from is actually dangerous. Because as far as we've seen in this movie, he could, a child could take this guy <laughs> out. Like, it's just, I don't know. I'm getting a little riled up about it. But it, you got me on your side now. Yeah. I Look, Um, it, you, this could have been, yeah, this could have been cool. <laughs> this could have been really cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want to ask you a question, though, about the fights, because um, I did make a note here as I was rewatching this um, that I, I had not caught before. Mm-hmm. I want to ask if you feel like there's any significance of the replicants killing people by taking out their eyes. Yes. I... Because, because Leon goes to eye poke him to kill him mm-hmm. before he gets shot, and then Roy kills James Hong's character by pressing his thumbs into his eyes. Uh, um, oh, uh,
0: well, I know he kills Tyrell it... that way. I don't know if he kills. Sorry, Tyrell, yeah. not
1: not James Hong. Tyrell. That's yeah. right. Tyrell's. But they character. place eyes um,
0: on James Hong's character's shoulders.
1: That's right. Yeah. So there's this, I and mean, there's obviously an eye motif uh, throughout the movie. But I'm, I just, from the replicant standpoint, why do you think that's their preferred method of taking mm-hmm. someone out?
0: Um,. I, I would have to guess it's because it's the only way that they're identified. Like it's the main way that they're Ooh. identified is through the eye dilations and I think it's like the eyes are a signifier of humanity in this yeah. film. And the this destroying the eyes is like a way of destroying almost the soul.
1: Ooh, I like that.
0: Yeah. That's how I would, I think, describe it. And I think that's a, think like, that's aside from the fact that I don't like that Deckard is constantly losing every fight, I do like the violence of the film. I like how, like, mm-hmm. it, it is It is genuinely effective. It is uncomfortable. Sure. It hurts to see a lot of the time. It's pretty brutal and nasty and harsh and, and bleak. I think that works yep. really well. Um, yeah. I, I just don't like that he's always losing. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I'm right with you. I think that's a really cool the the, oh, the eye motif. We should probably talk a little bit about that because even even yeah. with the eye scene, we meet an eye manufacturer. Uh, we have mm-hmm. the line, "If you only knew what I had seen with your eyes."
1: With your eyes, yeah. Such a great
0: line. That is a great
1: oh, line. And then and then the fun. ending monologue. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Exactly. And I to describe all these beautiful things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe you've hit upon something there with kind of why you think they were going after the eyes they are the window of the soul. And it's like, if you think about it, I mean, this is more of a modern approach, but like, as we think about CG characters and as we think about AI and all of this different stuff we've seen, I mean, the eyes are like where you can tell the difference. A lot of times, like that uncanny Valley is in the eyes and in the skin and Mm -hmm. whatnot, but even some of the best animations, like the moment that the eyes aren't quite right, that's when you get it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's how you fall in love with people. It's how you build connections. It's how you close business deals, like mm-hmm. look people in their eye, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, it, it it's a very integral part of the human experience. And obviously there are people who, you know, are blind and, and have a different way of, of, you know, interacting with the world. And it's just as rich and all those things. But, but in the majority, like the eyes are one of the most important parts of our experience as humans. Mm. And, for me, that's where, because the, the film, at least the final cut, to me is always asking this question, what does it mean to be human? And how would you know if you weren't? Mm-hmm. And would it matter? And what's more important, the reality or the memory? Like all these really interesting questions. Yeah. Um, and so with that idea of what does it mean to be human? I mean, to me, it's very, na- like aside from going super spiritual and talking about a soul, the eyes are the most Obvious thing that's like a physical embodiment of that. Mm,
0: well, I think uh, going spiritual is not necessarily a bad idea here because there's a lot of religious imagery in the film. Sure. Um, of course, one of probably the most blatant examples are when towards the end of the film, there's a recurring thing where Batty, his his impending death is depicted by his hand closing up and he feels mm-hmm. his death getting closer and closer at the at the climax of the film so he takes a nail and jams yeah. a nail through his hand. Yeah. Uh
1: very very Christ-like mm-hmm. uh in in kind of that stigmata. Yep. And,
0: and then he saves Deckard. Uh he yep. and there's sort of a redemption there. And then mm-hmm. as he I mean paralleling look in the in the Bible, Jesus' last words before he dies are it is finished. Uh in the movie, his last words are time to die. And when as yeah. he dies, a dove flies away, which again if we're talking <laughs> yeah, that's true. if we're talking religiously, uh when Jesus is baptized, a dove comes from yeah. heaven, and the voice says, This yeah. is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. There's a lot like the dove goes out, it's sent out by Noah. Doves represent life in the bible a lot of the time so doves are and doves are like the holy spirit as well so it's like his spirit leaving him
1: yeah 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 no i mean it it it's one of those things where i think that like i don't know ridley scott's you know religious beliefs or whatnot or the writers um religious beliefs but i mean when we think from a cultural standpoint like how do we you know as a as an american society i mean it is you know very heavily influenced by by christianity mm-hmm. and we've talked about this before where like there are just things that eat seep into you know the the zeitgeist there there's common language that is built around that and you know these shortcuts to, to helping people understand what you're talking about that's built around that mm-hmm. um and so it's it's one of those interesting movies that I, there are some very strong religious motifs to it but i don't think it's because the movie's trying to make any sort of point about religion no i think it's more because that's just the culture that the film was made in which takes us back i think to our conversation with james about orientalism and and this idea that like if you want a different movie or a different story like put different people on it Mm. like you know if you want something that is more you know Uh, indicative of an Asian culture or or, or like respectful towards an Asian culture have Asian people work on it Mm -hmm. Um, because whoever you are whatever the majority you have working on a project like those cultural experiences will find their way through Mm. for sure yeah I yeah I, I agree
0: I don't think the movie is making any commentary on religion I think it is making at most using religion to comment on the characters using yes. religious because yeah. I even forgot this uh, I, w- I just looked it up because there's a Wikipedia article on themes mm-hmm. in Blade Runner uh, and one of the char- uh-huh. one of the sections is religious and philosophical symbolism I completely forgot yeah. that the that uh, as as Batty is walking into James Hong's uh, shop. That he starts quoting lines, I believe, That's from right. William Blake: uh, "Fiery, the angels fell, etc., uh, etc." Cetera, et cetera. Like there are, mm-hmm. he's comparing them as the these, the uh, replicants, yeah, yeah, these. These celestial beings, literally in, yep. in the in the sky, who, who fell from Earth and now are living in, in hell. Because what we first see, the vision yep. that we see, is a hellscape. We see blackened sky. We see, we see jets of flame. Um, yep. And there's uh, Roy Batty that says, in this context, Roy Batty shares similarities with Lucifer, as he prefers to reign in hell rather than serve in heaven. Uh, which, I mean, those are the dichot. He can either try and take control of his destiny and survive on yep. the hell of Earth, or he can be a slave in the heavens. Right. Um, and then right. also the fact that Zora does dances with a snake, uh, and I mm-hmm. can't remember if there's a line in the movie, because in the Wikipedia article they say Zora uses serpent that, quote, once corrupted man, end quote, in her performance. I don't know if that's a quote from the film, I don't remember. Um, if it's like the announcer saying that before she comes up and dances. But certainly the name Salome comes from the daughter of a woman who hated uh, John the Baptist in the New Testament. Uh Uh, And And so that whole dance, like, yeah, uh, clear parallels there. So I, yeah, I think that what's really interesting is despite the fact that I don't enjoy watching the film, I do enjoy (laughs) analyzing it because I think there's a lot of themes. And like thematically... Very rich. Yes. I think there's a lot.
1: No, there's a there's a really great movie in here uh, that I think a second crack at making this film would have brought out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a testament to Ridley Scott and to the material that a film that is as messy at times as this one is has been so enduring, um, and that there is such a labor of love that has obviously gone into creating this movie um, and its visuals, which is why, even though it's not excusing any of the problematic content it's why i I try to come at that content and the inclusion of it with a okay what were they trying to do i Mm -hmm. they didn't succeed uh obviously and they need to be held responsible for that but you don't make a movie with this much love and just throw in some of this random stuff and not think about why it's there yeah um so what were they trying to say and failed to say because maybe we can learn from that um 'Cause it's not it's not just the one scene with him and Rachel. I mean, there are other bits where he's you know, the way his anger explodes and whatnot, and there's just there's other things in this movie that are like obviously sexist, um, or or you know, racist or orientalist, you know, and whatnot, that it's like, you know, there's a lot to analyze on the good and bad in this film.
0: Yeah. I I completely agree. I think uh I still I, I like to try and take stuff on the the terms that they were made. So it's like, what yeah. era was this made in? Right. And that can give a lot of perspective on stuff. It doesn't necessarily sure. excuse anything, but in some in some cases, I would argue, kinda does, because it's like, look, they tried. <laughs> like, I know, <laughs> I know. Um, uh, and this is another conversation entirely. But an example of this would be like yeah. uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which, mm, yeah, for what it was trying to do, I think actually did a great job. Considering the circumstances uh, sure. and had a, an overall massively positive impact uh, at the time that it was released. Uh, right. Since then, it has been criticized, understandably sure. so. If you were to try and write that today, it would again be rightly criticized, but I think taken right. on its own terms for the time that it came out, they I think Harriet Beecher still tried her best. Uh, and not everything's going to age real well. I think she tried her best. But I think at the same time, if you look at, and I think in this particular case, I seriously doubt that Orientalism and that whole concept was really on Ridley Scott's mind right. when he was making this right. film.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think there's there's a myriad of examples in film of ways that people have tried to advance um, you know, inclusion and diversity and whatnot. And by our modern lens, they still feel very dated. Um, Uh, Even going back to the other Ridley Scott film we mentioned with Alien and having a female protagonist and having a female protagonist who didn't necessarily um, subscribe to what we would have expected from, like, a sexy female protagonist Mm -hmm. of of that era. That being said, there were still things that were in that movie, like some of her final outfits and (laughs) the male gaze and whatnot, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and other things that are like, look, if this was made today, it would not be made this way but I think it is worth appreciating what it did mm. for the genre yeah. and for advancing, you know, this idea of women as action stars, yeah. um, which is obviously something that's great. So I, yeah, it's a tough conversation. It's a conversation with nuance. Um, I, I, I always, you know, my old basketball coach used to tell us that there were reasons, not excuses. Yeah. Um, and I've kind of taken that as a life mantra of like, look, I can give you reasons. It doesn't mean it's an excuse. Um, and I, th- I kind of feel the same way here with with a lot of this film. Yeah,
0: um, I completely agree, 100%. Uh, I do. I will say when we get to our Alien review, uh, I got some thoughts on the themes of that film, uh, and, and, yeah. and, and and actually as they pertain to the. Uh, to the outfits that Ridley uh, uh, Ripley sure. sorry wears towards the end of the film uh, I like that movie so much more than this
1: movie I mean it's it's hard not to <laughs> yeah. Alien is so good it's an amazing so easily easily one of the best sci-fi
0: movies of all time easily one of the best uh, oh, yeah. horror films of all time um, yes. I don't know if there's a better sci-fi horror of all time um, yeah, at least pure sci fi horror. Aliens is like action, Terminator is kind of sci fi horror, you know what I mean? I gotta mean? watch action.
1: Aliens again. I've seen it once and I did not like it, really. Um, I yeah, and I loved Alien 3 when I watched Whoa. it, and I know that that's, that's so backwards. I, I need to watch them again now as a more mature adult, yeah, and like see if my opinions still hold. Up. But I, I, when I was in college, I sat and watched all the Alien movies that were out at that time, uh, all back to back to back to back. Loved Alien. Didn't care for aliens, loved Alien 3, hated Alien 4 or Alien Resurrection, mm. you know. Um, I really enjoyed Prometheus, oh, okay. um, I haven't seen Covenant yet. Um, so yeah. it'll be interesting to re-watch everything now with a with a different lens.
0: Yeah, oh man, yeah, I love the first two. I think the first two are both incredible. Well,
1: but you know why I think I hated the second one? Um, not hated, but disliked the second mm. one, is because I watched it back to back with the first. Yeah, super different. And tonally, there's such a difference. And I was expecting more of the same. Mm. I was like, well, that was the best thing I've ever seen. I can't wait to see the sequel. And then it was so different that I was like, what the heck?
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I completely agree. Anyway, uh, the third one is more of a return in tone to the first one. I would say. Right. Um
1: And that's and I think that's why I liked it. Yeah. I think that's why I liked it. I mean, there was a lot of similarities in some of the tone yeah. and, and whatnot. <laughs>
0: the fourth one breaks with the tone of the entire frame. Oh,
1: it's just it's just the worst <laughs> thing I made. I just hate it so uh, much. taken as a
0: non-alien movie, I think it kind of works as like a weird horror comedy. Yeah. I no.
1: enjoyed it. No, <laughs> nothing about that. No. <laughs> I have nothing. I have no, that is on my list of worst movies of all time. I just, no. <laughs> um, but in regards to,
0: uh, right. coming back to Blade Runner, um, I yes. yeah, I completely agree. There are there are reasons for some of it. I think some of it is just, y'all missed the mark on some of yep. it. Like, good yep. God. Um, but I would say it is an essential sci-fi. I would say from a filmmaking standpoint, an essential film. Oh, yeah.
1: In a lot of ways this mirrors the way we feel about the Fifth Element. Although I would agree that the Fifth Element is a more entertaining film. Yes. And a less visually splendid film. Which is saying a lot. Yep. <laughs> it's yeah. saying a lot. But but I think we've got a little theme going here of like movies that have problematic elements, movies that are not perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but that have I don't want to say redeeming features, but good features. Yeah. Um and worthwhile features to, to spend your time watching. Yeah. And honestly, as for all of the
0: Orientalism, for all of the, uh, for all of the, well, not all of the, but t- just the rape scene that is so poorly handled. um, I, I think my biggest complaint just on the taken on his terms as a movie, it's just dull. Uh, I don't yeah. think Rick Deckard is an interesting character. I don't think they do a good job of giving his, his quest, Uh, propulsion and energy. Um, I think a lot of the movie just lacks tension and it's just him doing stuff and and it's stuff that he doesn't even really care about that much. Like he doesn't want to do it uh, so right. it's like, what is in contrast, and we'll talk about this when we get to Blade Runner 49, or 2049, sure. rather. I like the, I think the mystery element of that movie just makes it flow that much better. Cause there's always yeah. tension now of like, well, what's going right. on? What the, the whole movie, right. uh, which, yeah, this movie could use more of.
1: Yeah. I, I don't disagree with you, but I also don't necessarily take the dullness as such a negative, I think, as you do. Mm. Um, there's something about this movie that just feels like the perfect thing to turn on in the background or that it like it feels like a it feels like a good lo-fi track um, that I'm going to work on, you know, while while I'm working sort of thing. Yeah. like I listen to like ambient tracks when I'm trying to work and like I'll pull up like a cyberpunk Blade Runner mm-hmm. inspired where you hear like the noise of the street and stuff cuz it's just kind of fun. But like it, I don't know, there it, it's got to be the I got to be in the right mood. Mm-hmm. Blade Runner's not something I would just pop on for movie night. But there's a charm in my mind to some of the slow pace. And it goes back to some of that old film noir type stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, It's got a Chinatown feel to it Mm -hmm. a little bit at at times and whatnot. Or uh, The Long Goodbye or something where, like, it's very meandering. And there isn't a ton of, like, until certain moments, there isn't a ton of, like, push. I think the difference is that in those other movies, Chinatown, Long Goodbye, whatnot, our central character is so fascinating. Yeah. And there's
0: a central mystery as well.
1: True too, yep. But but also, but and that's where I think they could have done more to make Rick a more fascinating character that would have carried the movie more. 100%, sure. yeah.
0: Um, yeah, beefing up his character, beefing up the relationship between him and Rachel. Maybe if, if, they, if we were going to have the, is he a replicant thing, that could have been like a yep. big part of, like that could have been something that was more present in the film. Uh, that was something sure. that he was conflicted about. Uh, yeah, I think all of those elements. Or even, or
1: even more from him around the lines of, I mean, make him a little more racist. Make him a little more like, I would never want to be a replicant. I would never, mm-hmm. all these things. And then he starts to find out, well, what if I am? And he has to then, like, come to terms with his own core beliefs yeah. and change yeah. and whatnot. Like, there's an interesting story there. Yeah. Um, Why isn't he someone the one
0: using the term skin job? Which is like a, a sort yeah, of a slur exactly. that's used for replicants exactly. in the film that he doesn't use, and in the voiceover, oh my goodness, do you remember that part of the voiceover? Drops the N word yeah, on the voiceover. Voice yeah, it's like, oh okay, Which, <laughs> yeah, that's a choice. Yeah, that was a choice. Uh, that was. A choice. I get what they were trying to do, um, but right. yeah, it was it, it was wild, uh, and that voiceover. Oh my, god. I'm god. when this movie gets included on lists of the greatest films of all time, I'm always confused as to which version they're referring to because that voiceover <laughs> is so bad. Like not just yeah. the writing, because the writing is awful, but also Harrison Ford's performance is just like.
1: It's crazy. I was listening to the voiceover and then I dropped into the YouTube comments. It's crazy how many people defend that with their lives. Why? Yep. yep. Because and, and I see where they're coming from, even though I don't agree with it. Because they're they feel like the very bland, detached voiceover matches his character and matches the way that he just doesn't give an, uh, give a shit about anything. Yeah, I see where they're coming from. I don't think that that actually works in practice. <laughs> no, I I really. Because it, cause it's not that he delivers it. I I don't know. I can hear the difference a little bit between someone who's playing it that yeah. way and someone who just doesn't care. Right. Um, for the listeners who don't know, I am a filmmaker by trade and I work with voiceover actors. And, like, you can tell the difference between someone who's just checked out and not. And I don't, you know, I'm not throwing shade at Harrison Ford like, I know from backstory stuff he didn't want to do the voiceover in the in the first place um, yeah there but yeah it's it's a checked out voiceover not a not a detached voiceover yes, a hundred percent
0: he's yeah there is no motivation behind it's just well yeah, I have to say right, this exactly.
1: I gotta say this. I gotta add a little inflection here, so it's not monotone, and then we'll just keep yeah. going on. Yep.
0: Uh, the movie *Days yep. of Heaven*, which is not a noir at all, but uh, does is is another contender for best looking movie of all time. Uh, came out only a few years before this one did, and uh, does feature a prominent. How have I never heard of, of this movie. Uh, Terrence Malick. It's the movie that really. Uh, I mean, *Badlands* was already incredible, but *Days of Heaven* sure. was the thing. That was the movie he made before disappearing for twenty years. Um, gotcha. But uh Days of Heaven, gorgeous film, and features a voiceover that, in my opinion, actually works really, really well. Um it's sure. even though it's kind of flatly delivered. In fact, Badlands has a little bit of a flat affect as well in the in terms of how the yeah. the, the 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 narration is delivered. But it's like the what well, there's Well and so
1: many noir films have that. Exactly. But Harrison Ford didn't do any of the kind of tough, kind of gumshoe yeah, type Yeah, there's none of that dialogue. That, that there's none of that, like, yeah.
0: I would rather read a, um, oh, what is his name? Some, Tracer, Tracer Bullet? Is that the Calvin and Hobbes? I think the Calvin and Hobbes recurring war oh, yeah. thing. I would honestly rather read that. Than just watch Rick Deckard doing stuff or hear him talk.
1: Come but but that's a high standard to live up True. to. Tracer bullet. Come True. on, yeah. man. Uh, that is, it, it is. Oh, uh, Calvin and Hobbes is in Dalvis a class Ops. of its own. Uh, I love it.
0: But yeah, I I uh, w- enough about this film. We have talked we've talked a lot and we've been going for a while. We could probably we talk for another hour, but we did another ninety minute one. We said we weren't going to, but we did it anyway. We did that's it anyway. Funny. Let's walk <laughs> over to the quantum reactor and assign this yes. movie some quarks. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and okay. open it. Andrew, how many quarks do you <sighs> see? And how many would you award this film?
1: Well, this movie has a lot of quirks. I'm not sure how many quarks I'm gonna get. <laughs> it. Um, I've been holding on to that one for a while. I'm gonna pick 1,982 quarks. Okay. Uh, same year that it was released, 1982. Mm-hmm. And on that scale, I'm gonna give it 1550 um, out of 1982. I, I I think it has to score fairly high simply for the fact of it's so damn good looking. And like, let's not undersell that. Like, movies are a visual storytelling medium. Like, yeah. wow, did they knock it out of the yeah. park. Like. It's gorgeous. And the um, score is great, too. And the cinematography is great. And the score is amazing and, and whatnot. It's shocking that it's so technically good and then the editing is not so great mm-hmm. in places, um, which I have opinions on why that is, but that's a whole nother episode. Mm.
0: Um,
1: so, yeah, I, I, think that, uh, I think that overall I like this film. I, I would have it on my shelf. I would recommend people watch it. Um, if it was movie night and I was like, let's pop something on, I'd probably put in 2049 instead. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, it is more it is more fun Yeah, um, than, than the original.
0: Um, yeah, I can see 100% where you're coming from, and I want to jump onto the praise train as well and say, I've said it, I think, multiple times in this recording, one of the best-looking movies ever made. I do not see that as an uh. exaggeration. I don't know of another movie from that era that the effects hold up so consistently yeah. and so well. Yeah. This movie looks better than most movies, like, w- effects-wise. Not even just, oh, wow, look at the colors. The effects look better. Yeah. Than, and the sets look better than most movies that have been released since. I would argue looks better than Blade Runner 2049. I, I think the effects and everything look better in this film than they do in... And Blade Runner 2049 looks great. Like, it's a really good-looking yeah. movie. But, like, my word... This movie is, it is relentless yeah. in how, yeah. like, it's one thing after another after another that's like, my god, this costume, the design of this room, how textured it all yep. is, how lively it all is, how moody it all is, how much it just communicates mm-hmm. with the, with the, uh, the image and the moving picture, uh, combined with the music and the atmosphere, uh, this movie is dripping yep. with atmosphere, uh, unbelievable yep. in, in how good it looks, um, I will look into the the flux quark passator, and I (laughs) will see the same number of quarks as there are versions of this film.
1: Ah, so 47.
0: (laughs) There are seven. I'm going to run through them very quickly. The first. Oh,
1: my God. Yes,
0: seven. The work print prototype, uh, which was originally, I believe, was test screened for audiences, they gave a negative response, so they redid it and did a San Diego sneak preview, also in 1982, uh, which is almost identical, except that it included three additional scenes not shown before or since. Um, There is also the US theatrical release, 1982. Uh, That's the one that uh, first included the voiceover. As well as the happy ending, which we did not discuss, the original version of this movie had an openly happy ending that included footage of The Shining, uh, the beginning of The Shining, when they're (laughs) flying over the landscapes, uh, the two of them driving off into some lush, (laughs) beautiful countryside together.
1: Really, Scott's just like, what movie can I steal from (laughs) to make this work?
0: Literally just takes footage from The Shining. Um, So that's, that's... (laughs) <laughs> That's the theatrical release, 1982. Then we have the international cut, which is also known as the Criterion or unrated edition, uh, that involved some more violent action scenes than the U.S. version did. Then we have the U.S. broadcast version, 1986, uh, tones yep. down the violence and nudity, etc. Then we have the director's cut, 1992, which we already discussed. The first time the unicorn gets included, uh, yep. and was released as a direct reaction to them rescreening the work print prototype and audiences in 1990 and 1991 responding more positively. Um, Interesting. So, yes, the director's cut, uh, the 1992 one was approved, but originally they tried to bill the work print as a director's cut, and he was like, no. Um, gotcha. And then the one that most people view as the definitive version of the film, the final cut, released in 2007, which was assembled by Ridley Scott himself. Yeah. Um,
1: and, and that's, yeah, and that's where it's like, look, the director had a hand in this, this was his final vision, that's the one I gotta think about. Yeah,
0: that's the one, I think that's the one that most people watch these days, and probably most people yeah. watch for the first time since then. Uh yeah. it was definitely the first one I had seen. Uh so yeah of those seven quarks that I see, I'm going to <laughs> award this film four point seven five quarks.
1: Oh wow, higher than I thought it was
0: yeah. gonna be. I was gonna go five, four point five, but I decided four point seven five. Um, Because just because I think there are several scenes that are absolutely stellar. Uh, I think the opening scene is really cool. I think uh, a lot of the setup for the movie is really good. I think a lot of the death scenes are actually handled very effectively. I think the violence Uh is done well. I really love Daryl Hannah's weird performance. I think she's cool. Rutger Hauer is fantastic uh, throughout, especially at the end. I like most of yep. the performances in the film. Of course, the final monologue is unreal, unbelievable, allegedly partly improvised, partly written, whatever the story, Rutger Hauer and the writer crushed it uh, harder than yeah. a black hole. Um, <laughs> unbelievable scene at the end. Uh, and of course the visuals, what more can be said? Um and also, I don't like
1: watching this film. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't, I do not like this movie. That's fair. I, I you know, I, I love it from the standpoint of, this is such an odd film. Mm-hmm. For what you love and don't love, what's good, what's bad, you know, it's a great piece of work, but I never want to watch yeah. it. Like it's so, <laughs> there's as many opinions about this movie as there are cuts of it. Yes. Uh it's it's just a it's a fascinating piece of art. Yeah. Uh at the end I've of the day. I've watched
0: this more times than any other movie that I don't like.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean I think that says something. Like you're you're getting something out of it, even if it is something to hate. Yeah.